Hi everyone! Welcome to the Curiously Creative Podcast. Curiously Creative loves creativity and inspiring people to follow their own creative curiosities. We hope to bring you a bit of joy and inspiration with everything we do so that you can fall in love with creativity too. I'm your host, Akriti Lee, and each month I share conversations with all kinds of creative people who share their journeys and unique perspectives around their own creativity. We hope these conversations help us understand our own creative process and have the courage to live more creative lives. Today, I'm incredibly honored and grateful to be presenting an inspiring, world-changing and generous being, Sir Ray Avery. Giving a short introduction for Sir Avery is a mammoth of a challenge in itself, but here goes. Sir Avery has worn many hats over the years, but primarily known as a pharmaceutical scientist, inventor and social entrepreneur. He's most famous for designing state-of-the-art, low-cost, high-quality intraocular lenses for the Fred Hollows Foundation. These lenses collapsed the global price of lenses to such an extent that it made modern cataract surgery accessible to the world's poorest. Alongside continuing work on many world-changing projects, receiving many prestigious awards, he's the founder and CEO of Medicine Mondial, an organization that makes quality healthcare and equipment accessible to the poorest developing nations around the world. He's also the author of Rebel with a Cause, an autobiography that charts his life from childhood in English orphanages and foster homes to their knighthood. So, Ray, you are a pharmaceutical scientist, an inventor, a social entrepreneur, youth mentor, public speaker, writer, philanthropist, businessman, founder and CEO of Medicine Mondial, and humanitarian. You are a lot of things, which is pretty amazing. First thing I'm really curious about is how do you balance all these aspects of yourself, especially in some ways it's quite important to give each thing the time and attention that it deserves and also enjoy it at the same time. Well, I, I think the first thing is that one has to have a plan. Um, and one of the things that we're flawed as, as a human species is that we're the only species that know we're going to die but does nothing about it. We don't actually plan our lives and in doing so you, you become ineffective and open to random events. Yeah. But if you wanted to be something, if you wanted to be Prime Minister of New Zealand, you would make sure that everything you did was on a stepping tone to get to that point. It doesn't matter if you, your plan changes, if, if you decide after three years of doing that plan that you've learned so much that you really found out that you want to do something else. But the mm. point is that you've had a plan and in having a plan you do one simple thing and that's you set objectives. That's and, true. And yeah. therefore if you've got mm. objectives you're more likely to be successful than your contemporaries who don't have a plan. So um, what I do is I actually carve the day up into bites of time and that includes my family as well because I don't want to have a work-life balance that doesn't work for my family. So mm -hmm. everything that I do is done on very kind of precise schedules. It doesn't, it doesn't sound very romantic but it actually is <laughs> because you, you actually get um, a lot done and you, the real um, benefit is you're, you're successful at what you do. So, so you have very strict time control over the things that you're doing. Um, and because of experience, you learn what are the things that are valuable or not valuable. So I'm at a point in my life where um, I could spend all of my time focused on getting new products to market. And But the re reality is that once I die, if there wasn't some infrastructure or some inspiration left behind, I might not have well, been alive. 
So if somebody's quoting you in 20 years' time, you're still effectively alive or your spirit's alive. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons I do the talking is because also there's a huge amount of visceral, visceral intelligence in here that took a long time to approve. If I can mm. dispense that to uh, younger generations and also prevent them from falling down the manholes that I fell down uh, and give them inspiration, then that's a good thing to do. So that's why you have this balance of activities. But I'm lucky because one of the things you learn to do is you can't do it all yourself. So you have to build teams of people. We've got about 200 people around the world who do everything from PR, media communications, patents, uh, designing of um, mm. elements of the incubator. And so that's how you actually become successful is um, firstly having a plan, being very precise about the objectives that you want to achieve and then being a good leader. And if you're a good leader, you get other people to buy into that ideology and therefore you can be much more powerful than you can on your own. So that's why we mm. can achieve so much. That's true. So in some ways you're motivated by the fact that we don't have much time left, but you have so much to achieve and so much that you want to achieve in that lifetime. And by planning it through, you're giving yourself more freedom to actually mm. deliver mm. all those things, the inspiration, mm. the products, yeah. um, speaking, etc. Well, you steal time and you end up getting to a point where you become so good at working at pace and doing multi, you know, multifaceted things mm. that um, a minute's you know, seems like a lifetime. And so you don't waste time, you don't get in, in this vacuum. And even when you're with your children, um, we have absolutely quality time. It's now um, the school holidays, so we're doing science experiments um, and they involve everything. And we've got an old mattress out there that we're using various bits of it to, 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 to um, set fire to with different solvents and show how they work, you know. So, uh, so, so the, kid, the kids get to have a huge adventure and learn mm. about life. Um, we, we make sure that um, even their time is um, seen as exciting. And that pays off. My eldest daughter right now is um, at the Mind Lab um, doing computer programming and, and writing code all day. She's eight years old. Wow. So that's what you can do if you inspire people. So you're fully people. engaging in whatever you're doing. If you've got a bucket list, you really fail because it means you haven't been living your life. And often what happens with people, and perhaps even you're going through this, where you're, you start off in a career and you, you get to a point, and some people don't realise this until they get to uh, a point of um, comfort. But then, I mean, often you'll get somebody who's a banker and he's spent all his life in the banking industry and then he gets to the point where he can actually retire and then he goes and buys a vineyard because that's what he always wanted to do. Hmm. He always wanted to make wine. And now he's... The reason that he didn't was because he... Uh, he was worried about that. He was worried about whether he should actually make that change. You know, was, uh, but once he had the money and he was retired and, he, and the, the choice was taken, he couldn't continue his job because it was finished. Now he could then have a look at something else. Yes. So, but you can actually refine that by doing these, this planning process and say, well, that's my objective. Um, I want to um, you know, be a member of parliament. But when you get through that process after seven years as an MP, you may think, well... I'd actually like to work for the UN because I think I want to dream mm. bigger than local government. Right. And so um, have a plan and keep monitoring yourself against it because um, uh, if you do that, uh, you'll be much more successful. Yeah. So well, speaking of um, dreams, I know that as a kid you wanted to have a bicycle store, your yeah, own bicycle yeah. store. What gave you the courage and the confidence to go from dreaming to have the bicycle store to now changing the world's health? Because in the scale of dreams, that's a huge jump. Is that something that's been incremental, like you were speaking of now, where you kind of go through experiences and it gives you more confidence? To it's really just, yeah, it comes down to one, one word, and that's just knowledge. Right. We're all limited mm. by, our, uh, well, 
it's a combination of knowledge and imagination, but I would argue that the more knowledge you have, the more likely you are to imagine other opportunities. Mm. So um, if you've got a flea on a, on a dog's back, um, it has no concept of the, the bigger world around it. Its, its world is limited to just that dog and, and you know, and feeding off the blood off that dog. But he yes. doesn't know that the moon's going up and down particularly or, right. or anything else is happening in life. So once your horizon is, is um, uh, made larger and your knowledge base is larger, then you... You, you dream and what happens then is that um, you have to have one other characteristic that makes you successful and that is kids are naturally fearless because mm. they don't know about what can happen or what can go wrong Consequences. so, yeah. so they just play mm. and they, they, they go up to somebody one of their friends in a park and my daughter came back to me uh, when she was about uh, three years old and came back with this other girl from the park she'd been playing in and she said this is my new best friend I said that's brilliant what's her name she said I don't know because um, <laughs> they you know, they're, and, and they're not worried about failure at all mm. and so what happens in our education system is you'll have a, a, a girl with a great imagination uh, and she'll be doing a drawing there's this one girl who was doing a drawing in an art class and the teacher came up and said what are you doing she said I'm drawing a picture of God and the teacher said, well, you can't do that because, you know, um, nobody knows what God looks like, so you can't draw a picture of somebody that nobody knows what they look like. She said, you know, um, nobody knows what God looks like. And she said, they will in a minute. <laughs> because she, this you know, is my version of it. This is my version of it. So she was fearless. And, and that's um, what you have to, if you recognise that early on. Because mm. um, I reckon, I mean, I was lucky because I had a very brutal childhood. And... Um, I got to a point where everything bad that I thought could happen to me pretty much had happened. So therefore, I, I was annealed to um, uh, to fear. You know, I, I think fear is an imposter. You know, I've got to a point where fear is an imposter because it's you're worrying about what's going to happen, and it hasn't happened. Mm. Some bear's coming towards you, and you think he's going to eat you, and you can either be frozen by fear and then you die, or you can run away and you'll be eaten. Um, but if you, if, if you disregard all that and say, well, it's me and him, so I'll snot him on the nose and see if that helps. Mm. Um, so you actually come up with processes to ameliorate the situation that's causing the fear rather than becoming a victim of fear. And how have you gone through that process in terms of your, you've gone through a lot of adversity in your younger days, but shifting it, um, channeling it to be a more positive outlook? And a well, it's, you, are, you either can do one of two things. If you've had terrible upbringing, you can either try and... Um, say, well, look, you know, this, all these people that brutalised me should be brought to justice. And if mm. you did that, you'd be a victim of them, and right. Right. continue to yes. be a victim of them. But the best vengeance is success, and say so mm. they didn't um, affect me um, from my life's plan. Um, and I think that one of the enormous things that I, I'm very proud of about everything else is actually having a fantastic family, mm. um, because theoretically I shouldn't have done and so we have the most loving family yes. and it's attenuated simply because um, I wanted to be glorious you know mm. um, and it should be glorious I didn't have it so every disadvantage that I have I make sure that they they don't have it but I'm very practical about that they're not sort of fall no or you know it's, it's a it's, it's about them as a customer and I look at their statement of need and what they want to do mm. and I just help them do what they want to do yes my job is not to educate them because they, they'll educate themselves. Right. My job is just to give them um, a smorgasbord of things to taste and play with. Yes, and give them a more positive and healthy experience yeah, in yeah. contrast to what you had. Yeah, and that, that driver is much more stronger when you haven't had that yourself. Yeah, right? yeah.
your sense of social responsibility is quite apparent in all of the work you do, really. But is that where it stems from? Well, I think it's just a recognition of um, who you are as a species. You know mm. that. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I may be different than some people because I find it quite difficult to understand people who have immense wealth and mm. don't use any of that money to balance the world. Right. I mean, one of the, world, one of the reasons the world's in such trauma is because of this, 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 this disequity between mm. um, rich and poor. And so, so for me, it's a social responsibility from a scientific perspective because um, it just makes common sense that if we make the world... I don't think just because of an accident but birth, a child um, who's preterm should die just because it's born in Iran. Mm. Uh, so if we can make a low-cost infant incubator that solves that problem, then that's a good thing to do. Um, and so, you know, we live comfortably, but we, uh, all of our time and energy really goes into um, making the world a better place. And it, it's, it's about um, that um, Buddha-esque perspective of saying, um, if, you, if you're all constantly looking for love and adoration, you'll be unhappy all your life. But if you actually learn how to love people, then yes. you're happy. Yes. And so it's, that's a very simplistic thing, but it's true. And it took me a while to work that out. Um, and now we have a glorious friends all over the world and they get excited when we have milestones that we, we hit yes. and products go out the door or we're successful at things. Um, but we don't see, if there's a delay with some of these projects, that it's failure. It's just a, you know, failure is just a cul-de-sac on the way to success for successful people because they, right. they know that it's just part of the process of learning. You know. That's right. And um, one of the things that I've experienced is like, some of the people who have the least to give are the most generous. Mm. And it's that mentality as well, cultivating that mentality and being conscious of that choice that, um, that giving is a mindset. If you can build that, regardless of where you are in mm. your life, then it will carry it through when you do get wealthy mm. um, as well. But I think if we look at one of the reasons why we have all these big problems with social disequity, it still is embedded in that education process where... Mm. When we were born originally, what happened was we had, um, you know, great imagination and we were allowed to go to preschool and play with all the toys, pull out all the drawers. And then we were processed. And not only were we processed, the act of measuring our success against a theoretical value of NZSCE or whatever it might be actually started us in a race with with ourselves. Mm. So kids now, by the time they get to university, they see their success or failure as a measuring stick against their contemporaries. Right. So mm. when you get into business, you want to show off to the boss and be more appreciated than your contemporaries. So that means we don't build teams. And when you get to that situation, what you can do then is it's a very small hop, skip and a jump to say, um, we've got global warming and there's all these terrible things going on, but I've got these other more important problems to deal with at work because I've got these this job that I have to maintain and be ahead of all this other person. Mm. So it takes the... If we had a learning process that started and said, we're all in this together, and being successful is actually not being the winner, but being part of the group, and us winning as a group. And then I think if we taught that at school about team building and about innovation, then we'd end up with a collegiate... Um, corporate enterprise kids that would think about global warming and whatever was going to happen because they're much more focused on the world at large. So we're a product of education. So when I'm lecturing to people, I say we've got to relearn how to be kids almost and play and play with things and have fun and have imagination um, and reconnect ourselves as human beings.
in doing so, um, we've got a chance at saving society. Because otherwise, we, we're a reactive species. We wait until the floodwaters are up around our knees before That's we start right. thinking about global warming. And, you know. Well, capacity to make a difference is a lot larger as well when we are working together. And like um, when we are so focused on the success mm. on our own, on our just selves, mm. you you lose sight of the bigger picture. And also you risk getting to a point in some ways where you've spent mm. 10 years doing whatever it is that you thought you were going to do and mm. thought was the best thing for you, only to realize that mm. it wasn't. Um, and of course those experiences teach you if you learn from them, mm. but it's also that time wasted mm. where you could have um, activated so much more yeah. if you're in working together than comparing yourself with others. Mm. Um, in terms of the projects that you've worked on so far or ones that you're currently working on, are there ones that are your favourite or most important to you right now? Well, well mm. pe people often ask me if um, I... Um, uh, what's the thing, best thing that you've ever invented? What's the best thing you've mm. ever invented? And it's a bit like asking a chef what's the best dish he's ever made because <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a silly yeah. question because um, obviously if, if you thought that you'd already surpassed the best thing you could ever make, you wouldn't do anything else. That so, is true. So that what is I true. do is I, I answer that question rather flippantly by saying um, the, the, the thing that I'm most proud of is the thing I'm going to be doing next. <laughs> um, and that's true because... Yes. Um, I don't want to. Sometimes I might be walking down a street in Nepal, and a, a mother will come up to me with her uh, son or daughter who's had their eyesight fixed because of a lens that um, we made the technology to make in Nepal, and she said, "You are God, you know," and and they, uh, you know, adore you because you've done something for them. Mm. Um, uh, that often touches you on a on a personal scale because uh, it's, un, it's unexpected. Um, mm -hmm. But there's probably 20 million people like that around the world, and I could sit back and say, "Well, I've done my bit for society, and you know, I've done all the things, and you know, I get on with my life." I, if you look at that balancing act, um, but the problem with that is that I have a lot of other knowledge about nutritional products and um, and making electromechanical devices like incubators, mm -hmm. and it'd be wrong not to use that talent that I've acquired over you know, the last nearly 70 years, um, not to apply it and yeah. also to then bundle people together who've got much better knowledge than me in all of these disciplines and put them together into teams because um, because I can. Yes. And, and, you know, New Zealanders have three characteristics and that's the other thing about um, where we are is that we are one of the most, if not the most inventive countries in the world. We're bad at telling people about it because, uh, yeah. you know, what we do on the world stage is extraordinary. But people don't know about it. So um, the characters that we have, we're not fond of rules. When I'm jokingly talking about that, I ask the audiences often, who's got a deck they haven't got a permit for, you know, and their hands go up because we just don't bother with small stuff. You know, we just do stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the second one is that um, we um, have no respect for the status quo. Just because we are not skilled in the art of doing something, mm. we'll give it a go. Actually, we'll have, have a go. That's right. And there's also another series of guys in garages who, mm. who want to give things a go as well. And so putting those people together is the important thing. Um, but I don't think about each... Um, uh, there was a Churchillian quote about uh, success, and it, it goes something along the lines of um, success is... Uh, greeting each failure and the next failure and the next failure with equal enthusiasm. <laughs> so you just keep, right. you keep going. Yes. You know, so, you don't, you know, so and the same thing's true with mm. our projects in that I love them all uh, and they all have certain 
affections um, that are peculiar to them, like the nutritional products is probably mm. the largest product which will have the greatest impact globally in terms of the number of people that will benefit from it. Like we think about half a billion kids by year 2030 in sub-Saharan Africa. So if we can get that out, that's a big, a big thing. Um, at the same time, um, on a smaller scale, there'll be hundreds of thousands of kids who have a chance at life just because they've got a chance to go on one of our incubators. And so, and there, there are other things that we're working on uh, as well, which um, um, you know will go on long after I'm around. But my next five years is uh, five to ten years is concentrating on getting the products that we have out to market. It takes a long time to get them mm. out to market, usually about a decade. Um, so we 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 know that, um, but it will have a global impact. So the thing is. Do what you can with the skills that you've got, and I think you'll be happy. You know, do what you love. That's the other thing, because most people aren't doing what they love. You know, they're doing something else. But to do, be really good at something, you have to love it. That's right. Because then you work really, really hard, and, uh, and then it's not work. And that would be your advice for people who um, who want to do what they love for as long as possible till the end of their days. Well, that's, if you've got it right, you can. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's difficult for things like sports people because uh, clearly, clearly, yeah. if, if Lydia Ko might have a bit of a problem when she's 80, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. That's what you love to do. But then often those people will take on a role within that sport by being a commentary um, person or something like that. But you know, but for me, it's important to. Um, use every part of my skill set every day because otherwise it would be you know a waste because it's taken a lot of time to you know when I was I think about four years old I was in an orphanage and there was a standard lamp on the side next to me that had a bulb in it and um, I didn't know anything about electricity but I was fascinated by what caused this light to actually work so I unscrewed it and the light went out and I thought well clearly what is causing this is not in this bowl there must mm. be something in there so I stuck my fingers <laughs> down and I was instantly electrocuted thrown across the roof quick learning <laughs> right quick there learning. so I learned about electricity you know and, and it was a shocking experience so um, but uh, you know the, in scientific research um, it's important you know the, the transition between being an applied research scientist to uh, from a fundamental research scientist was simply recognising that I would be doing one thing as an academic scientist all my life. Mm. At the age of 26, I was one of uh, about 50 world experts on the Hill reaction of photosynthesis. Better than that, one of the best experts in the role of um, metalloproteins on the Hill reaction of photosynthesis. And I kept waiting for the subject to come up at parties. Um, Ready to discuss this. Someone (laughs) asked me about this. That's right. (laughs) And, And of course, it never happened. So... Uh, that would meant that I was going to be a really dull, dull fellow, and so um, I realised that if I wanted to do something really cool, I'd actually need to adapt um, my thinking. <coughs> also, it was a timing issue. I could spend all my life, um, and some of my colleagues have, and I've caught up with people that I worked with 50 years ago, and they're retiring, and they worked all in that same laboratory all their life doing fundamental research for a university. They've got mm. a nice professorship and so on, got a nice house. And, Nice family, but they all they inevitably are living in the past. You know, they, you know, they talk about I used to be. Yes. You know, I used to be bank manager for the ANZ. I used to be mm. a professor at UCLA. Their life's over. You know, because yes, uh, they don't. Have, I am. Or yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. What I do is this. Yes. <laughs> you know, I do well, cool stuff. And like, here's my next exciting project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So you don't. Have, so you can um, really have fun. And I mean, uh, for me, when they trying to nail the coffin on probably our little poor will come out with a note saying try this this is actually quite good because mm. <laughs> I still want to leave that knowledge base behind you know? that's right 
Um, so you had an interest in science right from an early age, mm. and you knew that was what you gravitated towards. What, a, what would you recommend for people who have either become disconnected with what they were intrigued by during childhood, or are not quite sure what they love, to even start doing something with it? Well, I think I call it the Beatles phenomenon, um, yeah. and that is that um, um, when um, Ken Robinson was talking to the teacher that taught um, Paul McCartney and um, one of the other Beatles um, music, they, 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 he said to the teacher, well, then you got a music? And they said, no, they're rubbish. <laughs> uh, yeah. And quite clearly this teacher... Your point is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this, 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 this teacher was quite clearly a failure. You know, he had half the Beatles in his class and he never realised it. Um, but the point was it was probably more to do with timing in that... Um, it's about you discovering mm. what you wanted to do. That's and the right. key drivers for them doing something may have been something completely different. So in other words, when they started to come into adolescence, as I did in that, that time, everybody had a tennis racket that they pretended was a guitar and everybody wanted to be Elvis and rock and roll right, right. Yeah. So the stimulation for them to become involved in music was probably more to do with their hormones than anything else. So we're going to be really cool and we stand up in front of all these people and they're adore yeah. us and we'll yeah. be, we'll, we'll be you know, We'll be famous and stars. So, but quite clearly they had, they liked doing it when they got to do it. And then they started, it took them, that long time that it took them to become famous was actually when they were learning how to write songs. You know, it Mm. took a long time actually. They were working in clubs all over uh, Germany and uh, Europe, um, you know, cheap gigs. And eventually they started writing their own songs. And when they did that, they, they, they gelled and they made it all work. So... It's a, it's a process of discovery. Um, I didn't start out to be um, a scientist who does all these things. One, it's that toolbox that you get as you go through things. Um, and I've always had a love of inquiry in terms mm. of pulling things apart, finding out how they work. So that's a fundamental love. I just love playing with stuff. Just, just because somebody hasn't thought of that, um, you know, it's, and it's, it's all like... All of us have the ability to, to be inventive, but there are some laws that you can follow that help you to do that. So if you want to make something that's different or inventive, first thing, you've got to have a creative mind and, and play with things and just pull them apart. But the most important thing is just a power of observation. Mm-hmm. So that everything that has ever been invented comes down to one single moment of observation. So there was a guy in Swiss Alps, and his dog came back to him and had all these cockleburrs all over him as these little pod seeds and... So he pulled them off and got home, looked at them under the microscope, his kid's microscope, and he could see all these hooks like that. He invented Velcro, Mm. just because he could see that power. And also, somebody was looking down a microscope in the 18th century and saw these bacteria didn't grow against this mold called penicillin. You know, you invent penicillin. Everything, whether it's an algorithm or whatever, is about that one moment of observation. And just because... What fascinates me most, though, is that... um, it, it, none of that's used up, you know. Um, the, the, the ability to see something and see an opportunity. So there were three guys in Paris who were stoned out of their mind. They'd be drinking all night, and they needed a cab home. And they couldn't get one, and so they had three problems. They had they had no local money. They didn't know where they were, and they didn't know the number of the local cab service. So they invented Uber because that right. solved all of those three problems. problems and they yeah. just observed that this would be a real cool business because there must be people all over the world like this. And we've right. made an international yeah. taxi service. You right. know, and and he, they thought globally, day one. You know, and so 
everybody's got the ability to do that, but they're often they're too busy focusing on that race in their individual business with their contemporaries and the domesticity of business to actually mm. take time out. And often you'll find people who have been successful have been the ones who've been a little bit of a wanderer uh, in their life to start with. So, so the things go looking for yourself in a way, go looking for the things that make you happy. And sometimes, just by accident, you, you, mm. you find you're in an environment and you love what that thing it may be, being a radio. You didn't know when you were living and working in London as a waiter. When you got to America and you rode a horse for the first time, shit, I love this. And it actually turned out to be quite good at it. Um, so you've got to try things. And I think that's what's wrong with schools is when, when you're taught um, through the education process, you go to these big um, halls and they've got all these careers that you, know, mm. you could actually do. But um, you're asked very soon to make that decision. Whereas you are without you having trying all without try, without trying yeah. any of them or mm. whatever. So we should have a better algorithm that says we, it's more about you. What do you like doing? You know, let's find out who you are, and find and we can do this through a series of metrics tests, which mm. are not uh, measuring uh, quantitatively but qualitatively. And That's they right. simply say, oh, you're actually quite good at this. You, did you know you were a fantastic? I think player? also what happens is when you are also seen as being good at something immediately you get put labelled or put in a box it's like oh mm-hmm. you are great at um, numbers you should be a mathematician for example yeah, yeah, yeah. etc but I um, always think of this quote that I heard from a poet called Mark Nepo who says we so early on get focused on being a noun or driven towards being a noun whereas the vitality of life mm-hmm. is in staying a verb so even if you don't know exactly where it's linked to, staying in a um, space of action mm. and identifying with that rather than I'm going to be a painter or I'm going to be this. That's like, right. for example, for you, you knew you like pulling things apart and that could manifest in a lot of different activities or the way you do your work or different things that you engage in. Mm. Um, well, exactly. I mean, so I was racing motor cars when I was young. Man, but that was more about the Beatles thing. <laughs> that was more about looking cool, wasn't it? <laughs> it was more to be cool. Um, and I was rubbish at it. Um, um, <laughs> Speaking of being rubbish at it, um, so most of us get to see the amazing things that you have done. And mm. you have done amazing things. Mm. But have there been some stories that where you've actually sucked at something or failed at something? And how did you get past that? Well, I've never failed in the sense that um, I think it was um, uh, Cassius Clay who said um, I've, I've never failed in anything because what's happened is I've learned stuff. That's right. I've actually learned mm. from what's happened, you know. So I don't see that that is, you know, failure is the wrong word. And so, mm, the, that's so true. Um, yeah. in, in science, um, we don't have a word called failure. We just call it modification of the thesis. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to go. So, so and that's what you do. Cause you have a yeah. thesis, and, it, and quite clearly it's flawed. So then you learn a lot, and you say, well, that thesis isn't correct. There must be another thesis. So you actually work around that, and you find out what the truth is. So It's all I've, an evolution. Yeah, it's just it? an evolution yeah. thing. So failures, mm-hmm. uh, and often uh, in startup companies, you find um, venture capitalists won't invest in a company unless there's at least one person on that in that company or the board that's been involved in a company that's failed. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just... Um, going to happen at some point. Something's going to fail. You know? right. And, and, and yeah. generally things fail uh, for reasons that you can't imagine. It's a lovely story of a guy in England and he was a painter. He, he painted pots, he painted plates and um, King George was coming out to New Zealand in 
uh, the early part of the 19th century, the first time he'd ever visited the Antipodeans. So this guy thought, I'm going to make my fortune. So he sold his house, put all his money into painting these plates, which were commemorative plates for yes. King George's visit to New Zealand. And he put them on the boat to go to New Zealand. And while they were halfway across the, uh, the Pacific, you know, coming down, uh, King, George, King George died. Oh, <laughs> and no. so, so he lost all his money, you see. Um, I often tell this story about timing because the timing was ratchet, you know, for him yeah. it, was, it was awful. But now if you try and buy one of those plates today, they're worth tens of thousands of dollars because it's for something that didn't happen. happen. That's right. You know, so it's a unique... But, yeah, it was yeah. still a unique occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like um, the Steve Jobs quote where he says, um, you can't join the dots forward, you can yeah. only join the dots backwards. Yeah, that's backwards. right, that's right, yeah. that's right. That's right, because you don't know what the dots are going to be. No, and exactly. so, so there's things that were going to happen. So if you were to beat yourself up over that and say, shit, why didn't I see that coming? Okay. Um, but you'll beat yourself up more if you didn't see something that was blindingly obvious and, and you learn from that. So failure is, is, is natural. You know, um, even in evolution, failure is that you have a, right. a particular area that um, doesn't work evolutionary. So it's nothing to be frightened of because if you're frightened of failure, you won't start. No, no, you don't. I think that's what stops a lot of people as well is they know have an idea of what they want to do but they can't make that first step and it's also with the with failure it's having that healthy mindset um, around it to not because a lot of the times failure can feel very emotional mm. so it's not that something didn't work but it's that reflection of that you're not good enough what would you say about that and kind of overcoming that emotional aspect of feeling crap about it <laughs> Um, or is that something that you've, you've just been talking about? It's just cultivating it and not being scared of it one step at a time. Well, I'm probably different in the sense that um, having you know, had an abusive childhood, um, you would have to, when you're being abused, to, to go to a place That's right. in your head mm. where uh, you didn't become part of it, otherwise you become a victim of it. So mm. for me, it's a natural thing. In fact, um, I'm much more a Buddhist person now um, because... Both failure and success are both imposters. That's right. You know, great, yeah. great happiness and great sadness are both imposters. Mm. So I'm more a Buddhist, so I watch the world go by yeah. in a kind of constant state of I'm okay. Yes. And, but I watch the rest of the world go, and these, you know, sometimes it's bubbling, sometimes it's cold, and all sorts mm. of things mm. are happening. But I, I generally don't get involved in it. Um, people, their emotions are this compendium of emotions, and mm. their happiness and sad. Fear, fear is one of the ones that, that really does um, immobilise people. They get so, you know, particularly in business when sales are going down, um, they often just become a victim. As a kid, I used to play with um, little um, lead um, soldiers and make little battles. And then I started reading about battles. And one of the profound things I learned about every battle was it wasn't the people with the most army or the biggest army that won inevitably. It was the ones with the most tenacity. They just held out That's longer. Right. So yeah. didn't give in, Did, right. so don't give in. So I learned that that's a good ploy, don't give in. Uh, and it's, whether it be, if you uh, take that to bartering in most Asian countries, people barter, the one that doesn't give in <laughs> wins. Wins, that's right, <laughs> yeah. You know, so tenacity is a, a key determinant in successful people. Because when you have disruptive innovation, uh, you only have 10% of the population who are cricket doctors. Hmm. So 90% of the population think you're wrong. Right. Otherwise they buy and That will it. always be the case. Right? Always there will always be that proportion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Then you get um, 
you know, medium adopters over then you get real laggards that are way behind and it takes a long time for technology and that will happen, people have to understand that in terms of how technology evolves that's who we are, yes. we're slow yes. adopters yeah. um, and so it'll be a lot longer than you think even though mm. the technology is there um, yeah. you know, uh, so, so even though you might have a great idea that you're going to change the world um, it's, it's again that human condition that stops us from adopting things or Indeed, um, the kind of tall poppy syndrome of trying to vilify people That's who right. do try and do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, um, depending on who you talk to, Steve Jobs would be a hero or, or villain. You know, depending on what what they've done. You know. Yeah. How do you think people can use that that knowledge that there will be potentially ninety percent of people who won't be on board with whatever it is that you want to do, um, and not treat that as a barrier, but go ahead and make that start. Well, you know, it's like um, you know, the Buddhist philosophy, you know, every journey starts with a single step and yes. you've got to kind of... Why I do a lot of talks is simply to give people that confidence because I did Rafa Rawara Bridge um, for nearly a year and I ended up, you know, being in a position where I can change the world. Hmm. And uh, I didn't plan that. I mean, yeah. I always had a 10-year plan, but my plan kept changing That's as right. I went through the whole yeah. process. But... Um, so it's an evolutionary, personal evolutionary process. Um. And for people who are like, say for like for myself, who are initially starting out on their own, don't really have a team or slowly building and doing a lot of things, juggling a lot of things on their own, what advice would you give to them to kind of do the planning, go through the process, achieve good quality stuff while they're still not quite in the position to have a whole team to help them out yet? (laughs) Well, the first thing is um, to dream really, really big. Oh, that's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, too many big dreams. <laughs> no, so you dream really, really big because it's it's easy. It's almost easier to dream really, really big. And in having a big dream, um, and if you can get a people, a group of people around you to buy into that dream, yes. And that's just because it, you know, nobody's as clever as all of us. No. And, and no. So if you thought about even in this small room now, yeah. you and I are cleverer than just me or you. Okay. You know, because we, we had complementary knowledge. So, yes. if you can find the people, if you have your dream and you know what that dream is, you have to get, as I said, there's 200 people right now working on our project hmm. um, around the world, or our projects, and they're experts in a whole range of disciplines. And all we've done is got them to believe in their dream. So, we, you know, we want to change the world. Yeah. And, and, and it is as powerful. Um, but we also treat everybody like family, which means that they know that they're important. So, on the back of our cards, it simply says change the world. world. Yeah, so dream really, really big and, and get that group of people around you. And if they, they must absolutely believe in the whole dream. And then, of course, it makes it, your dream becomes very, very tangible because you can't do everything. I want to actually talk a little bit about your writing. So, you've done written your own book called Rebel with a Cause and you've collaborated with um, The Power of Us. Yeah, well. we put Is together right? The Power of yeah. Us because we wanted to understand who New Zealanders were right. and what made us different. And that came about learning those three characteristics that we're not fond of rules, we have no respect for the status quo, and we dare to dream. Because all of these people in the book express those characteristics. Because right. we right. thought it may be just that we're innovative because of distance, the tyranny of distance, or that kind of thing, you know, making our own fencing um, hinges because we have to wait for the boat to come in. But it just turns out that we've got a, a, a landscape that allows us to be creative. Mm. And that's what makes it different. 
In terms of actually physically getting into writing, mm. how is that transition going from creating, pulling things about, being a scientist, to now doing something from a completely different medium and sitting down and writing a story? Was that quite challenging? Or no, no, because I've always written um, scientific papers and things like that. But I think more importantly, um, we've always developed products that are customer-centric, which means writing things that people understand in a way right. that they understand. Right. And so scientists particularly are awful at explaining things to people. You know, yes. um, So if I was explaining as a scientist to you what pH is, I'd say pH is a log to the base 10 of the reciprocal of the hydronine concentration in gram ions per litre. Doesn't mean and anything to me. That's right, that's right. But if I said pH is just about acid and base, yeah. and a lemon um, is acid and you know uh, milk is Isn't alkaline, and you get it. That's right. So, so, yeah. so that's my job is to communicate with the customer. So writing isn't that complicated in terms of... And even with talking, doing speeches, mm. what we try and do is do... If I just did a lecture on the uh, physiology of innovation um, it would be boring um, if, but if I do it with a lot of humour in it and examples of things that illustrate what you're trying to do people stay attentive because they don't know they, they don't know there's another joke coming you know, and they're right. trying to work out and you also don't do PowerPoint because PowerPoint doesn't work no. you know, so so you work out what's the best for the customer. So writing is, is just about that. You know, you write, and it's like advertising. If you drill down into advertising, it comes down to one line. That is, good advertising is just telling a story. Yes. Telling a story that people get. Um, and if you tell that story right, you release oxytocin. Yeah. And those people will say, oh, I love that. That's why I've got so many adverts right. with animals in. You know, it doesn't matter. And then telling that story in a very authentic way, yeah. right from the start. Yeah. Um, but again, knowing the, the human psyche. So if you do uh, a shock ad, uh, or you show starving kids in Africa um, yes. with spoonfuls of stuff, we, you, you turn on the flight reflex and people switch off. Yes, it's so you so get desensitised to it. Get desensitised. So, yeah. so what you have to do is understand the customer and adapt your communication strategies towards them. And that's what we've done in the book, hopefully. Um, and, but also... Be real. I mean, um, it's about being um, true to yourself as well. And if you're passionate about what you do, love what you do, and dream really, really big, you're going to be successful because they're the key ingredients. There's nothing to stop you from achieving what you want to achieve. Um, the most difficult thing is almost um, believing in yourself. Yes. To start with, just simply saying, because we double-guess ourselves. Um, and I, what I've observed about myself is I double-guess myself almost logarithmically less now than I did because yeah. I've seen so many things where things really could have gone pear-shaped with bombs going off and MIGs shooting at us and things like that and survived those things. You know, I remember being in the Christchurch earthquake and I've been lecturing to some clinicians there and I've been saying to them, you know, when you get to my age and you experience all the things you've been in, in you know, war-torn zones and, you know, bad, bad things happen to you when you're at... Um, in, in orphanages, um, you get become fearless, and I'm pretty much fearless, and so that gives you an edge that you can actually try things and be adventurous. And then, of course, um, I left that conference, and I just got into a cab, and I was driving to Hadley Park, and the first earthquake hit, and then I actually got out of that cab and sent that guy home. But I was walking along the street when the second one came, and the road was going up and down like this, and kids were screaming all around me and falling over, walls were falling over. And I looked up at God and I said, if there is a God, and I said, God, okay, I get it. I can be frightened. Now knock it off. 
I'm attuned to my fear. But it was a momentary thing, and I thought, shit, this is this is something I've never experienced before, no. and it was out of. But again, um, there was nothing I could do about it. Mm. You know, I couldn't switch it off. You know, no, I think what fear made me most fearful was no mitigating things. Usually, I can work out a mitigating strategy. Right. You know, like somebody shooting at you, you can hide behind a wall. Right. Um, but if the whole place is destructive around you, there's nothing mm. you can do, and that's where that last bit of fear could get through. But having that, that happened again, if it happened mm. the next time, I'd say, oh, yes, another one of those earthquakes again. I've been in one of those before. Right. So, so you learn from what all the things that have. Um, but you, you see, most people are worried about something. They're fearful of something that's never happened. It, it might not happen. Mm. You might not fail. You know. So, if, right. but if it stops you from starting, then you're lost because you're just going to go through your life saying, "Oh, you know, I, you know, if, if only, if only I'd done that." Yes. And, and sometimes you might have an idea for something, you don't act on it, and then a, a couple of years later, somebody's done, done that, that, and, and you right. think, oh, I, I should have done, done that. Yeah. So don't do that. So, in terms of people possibly living or being in very difficult or challenging circumstances where all these things happen around them. Is that what you would say to them in terms of having the courage to still keep creating or doing or pursuing what you wanted to do? Is to not be bogged down by the fear of where that leads? It's, it's, it, it, that I, I think the thing is often it's, it can be quite a simple focusing mechanism. You, you, you can't be the thing that you see you know, if you're no. looking at something, you mm. can't be the thing you see. So, yeah. if you can focus on um, what needs to be done, just by abrogation, you're not focusing on yourself and your own feelings of fear. That's right. So, you just focus on what needs to be done. Come up, write it down, and say, "This is what I'm going to do," and focus on that. You'll live through it. You actually yes. will live through it. And even if you, even if you, even if you fail, you'll live through it. You're going to learn stuff, but it, but if it doesn't kill you, it certainly will make you much more knowledgeable and right. more fearless. So, but if you don't know um, what that feels like, if you've never failed, um, then you're probably going to have this monkey on your back. If you didn't fail and survive it, mm. you're going to have this monkey about what happens if I fail. Yeah. But if you do survive it, then it's just daily business. That's you know, right. It's just daily business. It's like the real failure is not the failure itself, but failure to try. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. And even if you are risk averse, identifying that, so I am risk averse, so how can I mm. mitigate that risk averse stuff? How can I mm. put myself in a situation where that changes? Okay, so yeah. let's finish up with this quote from the Odyssey where it's the creation of genius always seems like a miracle, mm. and a lot of people would consider you a genius with all that you've achieved. How do you relate to this quote? What do you think about it? Well, I think we're all geniuses. Yeah. I think we all are. I think we're born with an innate um, creativity. I think, unfortunately, it's educated out of us. But what excites me is the, uh, particularly the young people today who have escaped some of that labyrinth, that education system, and they dream really, 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 mm. really big. And so I think we're all geniuses. Um, genius is almost um, just like breathing. Everybody has got it in them. Um, I think. True genius is, uh, there's a wonderful, uh, if you haven't seen it, go and check it out. There's an Apple ad called The Crazy Ones. That's right. Yeah, and, mm. it's, and it's here's to the crazy ones, the ones that uh, are crazy enough to believe that they can change the world are the ones that do. Yes, and that's um, where the miracle comes in. Yeah, and that's where right. the miracle comes in because it's a, it, it will happen by natural attrition. Um, just by dreaming extraordinary dreams, you create magic and that creates miracles and that creates uh, our spirit of identity as human beings and makes us special. Just got to get better at it and more ubiquitous at it. That's it. Beautiful. That's okay. a great way to finish off. Thank <laughs> okay. you so much, Greg. Okay.
So that's it for this episode of Curiously Creative. We hope it has sparked a little or a lot of creativity and curiosity in you. Curiously Creative is a production by Curiously Creative. Who would have thought? So if you'd like to know our comings and goings and check out some more inspiring content, head on over to curiouslycreative.co.nz. Until the next episode, with lots of love and a massive splash of joy, Akriti, your creative curiosity advocate.